Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. Maybe it's the cold wind that chills you to the bone. Or the strange rumbling beneath the city streets. It's the unnerving sense that there's a world around us we cannot see. It's not your imagination. This world is very real. And it's very, very angry. And why don't you just start with me? Now you f*** me off. No longer raising hell for the movie corporations at the moment, Hellboy, alias Ron Perlman, is instead mad as hell on the picket lines against them, on strike with the actors' union. Here's Perlman out there on the streets, somewhat cooled down from the last time he raged against them on the show, quote, the soullessness of corporate America, and he explains why. I get the feeling that if we do this right this time, we won't have to worry about doing it every three years. Um, so stay strong, call me, go to my Instagram page, I read all the comments. If you're having trouble, if you want to ch chit chat about, you know, getting through the night, if you want to have a drink with somebody at three o'clock in the morning, let's do it. But whatever it takes, we got to stay together and we got to realize that um, what we're asking for is simple, American decency. That's all we're asking for. And without that, how can we possibly shine a light onto the human condition, which is what the glory of actors and writers and directors who make content, as they call it, content. It's actually movies and television. How can we do that if they strip away all of our humanity? Hey everybody, it's Ron again. Um, with the uh, announcement of the actors going out on strike, uh, I took to Instagram Live to give a background of my experience as a Guild member and um, to give some of my reactions to um, the current events while we find ourselves in the situation, etc., etc. Um, and in the aftermath of that, there has been a lot of reaction, mainly because at one point, admittedly, I got quite heated because I was talking about a quote from one of the executives on the other side of the negotiation, talking about how they plan to not even begin negotiating until writers and actors started losing their houses and their apartments. And so, as you can imagine, my reaction to uh, somebody wishing that kind of harm on people in the very same industry that they call their own would engender um, a response. So let me make something very clear right now. I don't wish anybody any harm. I hope the asshole who made that comment also doesn't wish anybody any harm. But when you start going around and saying, we're not even going to bargain with these f until they start bleeding and their families start bleeding. I mean, if you want to talk about some of this that makes people so cynical and so with our current climate. I mean, this strike is just sort of a, I mean, it's, 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 it's a symptom of a struggle that's way bigger than the strike itself. It's a symptom of the soullessness of corporate America and how everything has become corporatized in this country. Corporations only care about one thing, and that's quarterly profits. And that's their shareholders and their stockholders. When you co-opt something 
that deals in beauty and the human experience, like film and television does, like any of the fine arts do. But it's being run by people who only care about one thing, and that is money. It makes for some very strange bedfellows. And so we all must try to get along. And we all must try to understand you have your value in giving us the resources we need to make content. And we have our value as storytellers because of the effect that we have when we tell our stories beautifully and properly on the people that come to see them. I don't know where I'd be without movies. I learned everything I needed to know about what kind of a man I wanted to be by watching movies, by watching men behave like men, women behave like women, by watching the human experience told in all of its glory with music and sound and fury. And the people who en enabled all of those beautiful experiences to happen, I have nothing but love for the original guys who started the studios. But let's maintain a degree of humanity in all of this, okay? It can't all be about your Porsche and your stock prices. There's got to be dignity if we are going to hold the mirror up and reflect the human experiences, which is what we do as actors and as writers. And not just us, the drivers, the camera guys, the costume, the makeup people, the hair people, the electricians, the production designers. You want them to lose their houses too? Is that what you're after? Just break everybody? How sad. So yeah, I'm being very clear. I wasn't, I never mentioned one name. And I don't want anybody to get hurt. But stop with the bull, okay? Because all you're doing is you're killing what's beautiful in this country by putting a price on everything. And if it's not the right price, and if you don't walk the walk the way we want you to walk it, we'll just replace you because you're all replaceable. None of you have any value. That's what this strike is about. It's about human dignity. That's what unions are about. It's about being able to come home to your kids with a smile on your face and say, I did this for you today so that it's all we're all after. I send you nothing but love. Peace out. And that was Ron Perlman telling it like it is in our ongoing strike updates in progress. And coming up next on the show, at times to realize just how much our own history has been buried and kept from our mass consciousness in this country, hearing it from elsewhere can be a startling revelation. Such is the case with the presentation this week from Brett Gregory at our Arts Express UK desk coming up. For instance, who knew that the blacklisted Hollywood 10 was actually the Hollywood 11? and that the flowering of subversive political and creative passion during the Hollywood Renaissance of the 70s was fueled by those Hollywood McCarthyism victims of persecution preceding that period, or what despicable role the Hollywood Reporter played in promoting the blacklist and more, along with another deplorable enabler, Red Channels, and its blacklisting on radio, television, and broadcast journalists as well. One film that Gregory will feature is the seminal role of Midnight Cowboy, with a look back first on how it all happened and why. John Voigt, his dazed and confused Texas dishwasher hitting the streets of Gotham in Midnight Cowboy, the 1969 John Schlesinger-directed classic that kicked off the subversive Hollywood renaissance of the 70s, First, Voigt takes a memory lane excursion in the documentary Desperate Souls, Dark City, and the Legend of Midnight Cowboy. We had this little scene where I had to run half-naked down a, a dusty street. It was 115 degrees in Texas, in Midland, Texas, and we were sweating and everything, you know. 
But anyway, I do the shot, and that's the last shot. And we had just a little van that took us out there, took us all out there. And I came back, and I went around the van, and I saw in the shadow, uh, uh, you know, getting out of the sunshine, it was John. And John was, he was like this, shaking, you know. And I said, John, what's, what's, what's the matter? He said, what have we done? What have we done? We've made a movie about a, a dishwasher who goes and f***s a lot of women in New York. What did they say? What did they say about this picture? I said, and I, and I knew he was having a complete meltdown, right? I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm his friend. I want to help him. I grabbed him by the shoulders and I said, John, I looked him in the eye. We will live the rest of our artistic lives in the shadow of this great masterpiece. He looks up. You think so? <laughs> I said, I'm absolutely certain of it. <laughs> it was the only thing. It was the only thing that could get him out of it. Is why, it, you know, I said the most ridiculous thing I could think of. <laughs> but it turned out to be true. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. People stopping and staring. Can't see their faces, only the shadows of their eyes. I'm going where the sun keeps shining through the pouring rain. Going well, the weather suits my clothes. Banking off of the northeast winds, sailing on. Summer breeze and skipping over the ocean like snow. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express, and I'm Brett Gregory. My guest this evening is the curator of a unique season of controversial yet compelling Hollywood movies from the 1960s and 70s, which, in collaboration with the national film festival organiser Cinema Rediscovered, global distribution company Park Circus, and the esteemed British Film Institute, will be touring cinemas in the UK and the Republic of Ireland throughout this autumn. Hi Brett, thanks for having me on the show. My name's Andy Willis. I'm Professor of Film Studies at the University of Salford in the UK. And alongside that, I'm also a Senior Visiting Curator for Film at Home, which is uh, a multi-art centre in the middle of Manchester in the northwest of England. And what is this curated film programme, this creative project, about exactly? So this project uh, is on the Hollywood blacklist, but particularly on how those people who were involved in the Hollywood blacklist ended up going back into the American film industry in the 1960s. And it's particularly focused on those who contributed in the broadest sense to what's now known as the Hollywood Renaissance. And I went really from the early stirrings of the Hollywood blacklist, which really, I think, began uh, at the end of the Second World War. And in the trade papers within the film industry, such as The Hollywood Reporter, there began to appear articles that were accusing people who worked in the Hollywood film industry of having communist sympathies. And this is quite ironic, seen as uh, when the Soviet Union was an ally, many people had been encouraged to make pro-Soviet uh, films. Um, but after the war, when they were now the enemy, suddenly those films were held against people and they were accused of being communists or communist sympathisers. And this came to a peak, really, in October 1947, when the House Un-American Activities Committee, which is often known as uh, simply as HUAC, subpoenaed 19 people to appear before them to, to be questioned about their loyalty and about their communist sympathies. Reds under the bed. So, 19 initially, you say. They actually only actually called 11 people 
Uh, one of those people was the playwright Bertolt Brecht, who did talk to the committee, but then realising uh, that the writing was on the wall, very soon after that, he got a plane to East Germany and, uh, and had you know, one of the most legendary careers in, in, in European theatre. The 10 who were left were all held in contempt of the committee, and they were then, eventually, after an appeal, they were sent to prison for a year. And they became known as the Hollywood Ten. And that included mostly writers, uh, but also a couple of directors and writer-producers. And I think that reflects uh, how influential and how important writers were seen at the time within the Hollywood film industry, how it was the writers who could put ideas within the films. And then what happened? You know, things got worse just after that. So in 1947, there was a statement made by a number of the key people in the Hollywood film industry, and this was known as the Waldorf Statement. They'd all met in the Waldorf Hotel. And you had people like Louis B. Mayer from Metro-Golden-Mayer in attendance, uh, Samuel Goldwyn, and, you know, lots of people who were key people. Harry Cohn was another one from Columbia Pictures. You know, names that we probably know as the big studio heads. And they all came together and said that if they uh, had anyone working for them under contract who was seen to be a communist sympathiser or a communist party member and didn't uh, renounce that, then they would terminate their contract. And really that started the Hollywood blacklist. All very sinister. And there was some sort of in-your-face propaganda campaign going on as well, wasn't there? Very shortly afterwards, in June 1950, there was the publication of a, of a pamphlet by Counterattack called Red Channels. And Red Channels really sort of stuck the boot in even more to progressive uh, practitioners within the Hollywood film industry. And that named 151 actors, writers, musicians, as well as broadcast journalists and other people working in the media. And again, they were effectively, after they were named in that, uh, they too were blacklisted. And after that, they were unable to work. And how long did this reign of terror go on for? So, you know, it lasted for a good 10, 15, for some people coming up to 20 years, where they were unable to work, they were unable to have their names on, uh, on films, they were unable to uh, have their names on the television programmes that they wrote. So it was a very, very dark uh, period for Hollywood, and it caused great uh, rifts, I think, that lasted for decades and decades after, with people not being... Uh, happy with those people who had named names. So one of the things people may well know about is that as part of the HUAC trials, uh, people will be invited to name names of, of Hollywood's communists or communist sympathisers. And, uh, you know, famously, people like Elia Kazan, the theatre and film director, did name names, and that caused great disruption for their working relationship. So, for example, Kazan had worked a lot with Arthur Miller, and after he named names, Miller refused to work uh, with Elia Kazan again. When Elia Kazan was given a, a Lifetime Achievement Oscar, people may remember the ceremony where when it cut to the audience, people like Ed Harris and Nick Nolte were sitting, uh, sitting on their hands, not clapping and looking stony-faced, while outside people like uh, Abram Polonsky, the writer-director, and Walter Bernstein, the writer, were, were protesting with other people about the fact that they were giving an, a Lifetime Achievement Oscar to someone who had named names and destroyed the careers of many of their former friends and, and work associates. Yeah, I watched that ceremony with Ed Harris and Nick Nolte on YouTube years ago. Totally awkward. Anyway, let's move on to the films you've selected for the programme. Yeah, one of the key films that uh, we chose for the season was uh, Serpico from 1973. And again, it's a film that I think many people are familiar with, directed by Sidney Lumet, uh, with a, a stellar performance by Al Pacino. But what people maybe don't know is that the first early drafts of the screenplay were written by Waldo Salt. And Waldo Salt had been one of those people who were blacklisted. Another film that we selected was indeed Midnight Cowboy from 1969. And that's really the film in many ways that brought Waldo Salt back into, into focus in terms, of, in terms of the film industry. He had made a couple of other films before that, after his blacklist, notably Taurus Bulba, the, the adventure film from 1962. But uh, really, he was unhappy with going back into making those sorts of adventure films. He wanted to do something that he felt was a bit more weighty. And when John Schlesinger, the director, and uh, Jerome Hellman, the producer of Midnight Cowboy, were looking for someone to work on the adaptation of the novel, I mean, the, the novel by James Leo Herrelly had, had been seen as something that was almost unadaptable. And they had tried with a playwright called Jack Gelber to adapt that, but they'd been unsuccessful. And it was Waldo Salt who found a way to do that. Midnight Cowboy is a great film. 
But why is it a key film for this programme? It's the, still the first X-rated film to be given the best uh, film Oscar. Uh, Armando Salt was rewarded for his work on the film with an Oscar himself. So this seemed to be a really important film, and it's seen as emblematic of the new Hollywood, bringing in these new challenging ideas. And what, we really want, what I really wanted to do was to highlight the fact that Waldo Salt, someone who'd suffered in the blacklist era, was able to come back and to contribute to the kind of progressive politics of, of a film like Midnight Cowboy. Tell us more about the movie uh, Uptight. I've never heard of it. Yeah, Uptight's an interesting example uh, of the films that were picked for the season. Uh, it's much lesser known than, say, Serpico or Midnight Cowboy. Uh, it's directed by Jules Dessin. Uh, Jules Dessin was, again, blacklisted in the early 1950s. He moved to Europe and, and rebuilt his career as a film director in Europe. People may well know him from uh, Rafifi, the classic heist movie that he made in France in, uh, in the mid-1950s. Uh, and Uptight was the first film he made back in America. It's a really interesting film. Uh, it's, an, it's an adaptation of the same novel that John Ford adapted for The Informer in the 1930s. And so, again, as someone who'd suffered from the blacklist, who'd been named by former friends and comrades uh, before HUAC, Jules Dessin, I think, was interested in this idea of the guilt of The Informer, which is at the core of this film. And there were political shenanigans going on behind the scenes. Is that right? Uh, it's a fascinating film, but it's a fascinating project as well. The story of the making of the film is, is really interesting. It was shot in Cleveland, but there was so much tension between some of the extras that they were using on the film that they had to take the production back to Los Angeles. And what came out later was that the FBI had tried, by all accounts, to uh, get people working on the film to inform about the politics of the film. So Jules Hassan takes the setting from Ireland and the IRA of the original novel and John Ford's film and places it into the Black Power movement in Cleveland in the late 1960s. It's a, it's a fascinating film. Black Power, the IRA. What else have we got lined up? Yes, another film that focused on uh, black experience in America that had a contribution from someone who had been blacklisted is Claudine. And it's a, a much smaller, quieter film in, in many ways. It's uh, set in Harlem around a single, a single mother played by uh, Diane Carroll. Diane Carroll was nominated for an Oscar for her performance in this film. Uh, and she meets a kind, well-meaning garbage man played by James Earl Jones, and they try to make a go of things in 1974. It's directed by John Berry. John Berry, again, had been a director, very up-and-coming. He directed John Garfield's last film. And then... In the 1950s, when he was blacklisted, he too went to France where he built a career. Uh, and 1974 and Claudine was the first time he came back to work in America. And the producer's got a very interesting background, hasn't she? Uh, the film's produced by somebody called Hannah Weinstein, who is not as well known as she should be. Uh, but she has a really interesting and really strong link to the blacklist. And she came back to America. She hadn't been blacklisted, but she came back to America uh, and she helped form an organisation called Third World Cinema Corporation with uh, Ozzie Davis and some other black film practitioners with the explicit aim of training up black and Hispanic people to work on films in the background, working as technicians as well as working as actors and writers and directors. And this is the first film that they produced under that organisation. So it's a really important historical film, I think, and it's been a little bit forgotten a film that hasn't been forgotten, though, is Robert Altman's MASH. Yeah, so MASH is a, another of the, of the familiar films that we've got on in the season. Today it's remembered for being you know, the film that broke uh, Robert Altman and introduced his style of filmmaking with you know, sound and image combining in a very particular way. But for, for this season, Look Who's Back, The Hollywood Renaissance and The Blacklist, I was really wanting to focus on the uh, screenwriter of MASH who adapted Richard Hooker's uh, novel, uh, Ring Larder Jr. Uh, now, Ring Larder Jr. had been one of the Hollywood Ten, so he went all the way back to the beginning of the blacklist, and he was one of the first victims of the blacklist. So why is Ring Larder Jr.'s work on MASH so important? So Ring Larder Jr.'s contribution was vital to MASH in many ways, and I think it, it's interesting because he brings to it, I think, progressive politics and attempt to offer a real sense of the horrors of war. It also looks forward, I think, a little bit to the cynicism of the 1970s. I think some of the characters' attitudes uh, reflect the directions that America may have been going in in the, 
in the 1970s. Uh, but really, you know, MASH is one of the great anti-war movies. America was still in the in the thrall of Vietnam in 1970 when the film was released. And I don't think anyone anybody needed any pushing to be able to read the career of MASH uh, for the Vietnam reality that many Americans were experiencing at the time. And you focus on a particular female actor in your programme as well, don't you? Well, yes. I mean, I didn't want to just have uh, writers as the focus of the season. So I included uh, Hal Ashby's 1975 film Shampoo. And Shampoo is uh, you know, set in the late 1960s and is about the kind of excesses and the vanity of, a, of America in that period. But it has a standout performance from Lee Grant, who won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for the film. And Lee Grant had been an actor who in the 1950s was just on the cusp of you know, real fame, but uh, was blacklisted. Uh, and she reappeared in the 1960s. Uh, she appeared in uh, in the heat of the night. Uh, she was nominated for an Oscar for another Hal Ashby film, uh, The Landlord, and then she came, went on and won won as I say won an Oscar for Shampoo. And Lee Grant, I think, is you know, a really great example of how somebody, uh, an actor, could could come back from the blacklist and reestablish themselves right at the centre of the Hollywood film industry during the Hollywood Renaissance. Hollywood, the dream factory with nightmare working conditions. Well, I think the Hollywood film industry sees itself, as you say, as the dream factory, uh, offering a very particular version of society as the aspirational one that we should all be seeking out. And I think what the Hollywood blacklist era shows is that uh, when people were starting to write other versions of the potential future society or the contemporary society, not the one that was supported by the capitalist studios, then they were quick to act and they were quick to marginalise those people. And let's hope that there are writers and directors and actors and musicians, as there were in the 1940s, that are willing to offer an alternative and to offer a challenge to those things. Great stuff, Andy. It's always healthy to end these things with a clenched fist in the air. It's been a pleasure having you on the show and I really wish you the best of luck with Look Who's Back, The Hollywood Renaissance and The Blacklist. This has been the UK desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. Jeremy Irons, and you're listening to Arts Express. Express. How are you feeling now? Good. Fine. Back at work. By the time I was a kid, I knew I'd run a family business. What line of work are you in? Waste management consultant. Tony Soprano. Are you in the mafia? This is overdue. Am I in the what? Like my uncle ran it. Like my father ran it. I'd run it. You said you were in waste management. Jimmy says hello from hell, you f- Environment. One of gangland's leaders died late this afternoon. The times have changed. Nobody knows who's running things anymore. Why don't we call this what it is? A shakedown. What do you think Dad does for a living? Waste management. Sometimes you're so naive. That is a power vacuum at the top. Your boys were warned. I run my crew my way. Problems finding good help at the bottom. Oh, is that him? Now that would be some coincidence if it wasn't, wouldn't it? And the feds are always there lurking. And believe me, things ain't much better at home. Meadow? You think I got a brain tumor? Well, we're gonna find out. What a bedside manner. I mean, coverages. Kill me now. Take the carving knife and stab me. Here. Here. Now, please. So where does that leave me? Do you feel depressed? Hi, Jack. Bye, Jack. It's no better roses. Well, sometimes it is.
What are you so afraid is going to happen? I don't know. This is Scarface, final scene. Say hello to my little friend. Like father, like daughter? Well, perhaps not so much. Amy Redford, daughter of Robert Redford, has made up her own mind as an actress, director, and storyteller on screen. First, why she joined the Sopranos and the Republican Convention Youth Rebellion in the Streets action drama This Revolution, along with Rosario Dawson, to her current directing turn, touching on toxic masculinity in what comes around. First, some scenes from This Revolution, then Amy Redford. As the city braces itself, I need you to go out and shoot street-level protests with the RNC. It's not really my gig. What do you do? You just ride around in tanks filming U.S. troops invading foreign countries? What was that like? It was like a mass experiment in the Stockholm Syndrome. It got me face-to-face -face with all the most radical groups. You lost? You know anything about the Black Bloc? The state is the only one that can sanction violence? So when I do violence, it's wrong. When the state does it, it's great, right? And this is the oldest war in America, and you guys know it. Get in the car and leave. Where were you last night? You come here around 5, and we'll see if you can hang. What, you spend one day with a great unwashed, and suddenly you're one of them? Yo, kids gotta hang up that camera, man. I want to know exactly what is going on at this network. BCN has obtained exclusive footage of a radical anarchist group. And then all this would have to come down. That's what I want to see. Hi, and welcome to our show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Are the ways in which your father, as a creative inspiration, his films and approach to filmmaking, influenced you in your choices like This Revolution and The Sopranos and What Comes Around? Absolutely. I, I was lucky enough to be raised around all of the incredible, um, you know, uh, creatives in the Sundance Institute. And so, you know, he, of course, was the founder of that organization. And a lot of that came out of his own lived experience as, a, as an actor and a filmmaker himself. And so knowing how much he enjoyed being able to launch new voices and being uh, respectful towards storytelling was something that definitely guided a lot of uh, my desire to, to jump in the ring. How do you feel your experience on The Sopranos gave you insight into portraying males and masculinity in what comes around and movies in general? No, I mean, not directly with this film. Um, I mean, he influenced my desire to be a storyteller, but uh, not with this story in particular. I feel like being a human being probably gave me most of my <laughs> um, ability to, to try to get into the weeds of masculine behavior. I... I have had the benefit of working with some extraordinary male actors. Kyle Gallner and Jesse Garcia in this film were, you know, generous and, um, you know, could, could really talk about the experience of power and what that is. And they could calibrate in a way that helped us really tell the story. So um, I... I feel lucky that, you know, these are the kind of collaborators that I've been able to work with. I also would like to see us be a little more nuanced in our uh, discussion of toxic masculinity. I think it's hard for a young boy to be coming up in, in this age and immediately be labeled as toxic because they're masculine. So I think the healthier thing is to really investigate a more nuanced conversation. And that's hopefully what uh, we can continue to do. And what you say and what comes around is based in any way on your personal experiences in depicting males on screen and their relations with women, for better or worse. 
So Scott Organ was the writer of this film, and uh, he wrote the play that we adapted into a, into a movie. Um, I think for any director that takes on a story, they like to bring whatever their lived experience is to the story so you can inhabit it with as much truth as possible. I thought there was interesting concepts that I related to and wanted to investigate, and that his words and his structure of the story was a great way to do that. And what of those ideas specifically were you interested in pursuing? I think that when you look at somebody's behavior and you decide with a sort of snap judgment that they are bad and you can demonize, that you might be missing an opportunity to investigate what is the origin of that behavior and perhaps was that person failed earlier in their life. I, I think we can get very um, uh, sort of binary in our thinking about other people and I and I would like to see us uh, have more conversations about the spectrum of the human experience. I'm a fallible human being. I think probably other people are also fallible. And it's more interesting to figure out how to take responsibility for a behavior you're not incredibly proud of instead of gaslighting and making people feel like they are uh, not the recipients of that behavior. Um, when it comes to the young character, we have given our young people these devices and we have expected them to figure it out and then we judge them for using them. And I think it's important that we know that this is the way that they communicate, this is the way that they actually find connection, and uh, it's not going away anytime soon. So better to talk to them than to just be angry at them because they're using the thing that we actually gave them. Okay, thank you so much, Amy Redford, for joining us on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll go out now with the Arts Express Screening Room Crime Scenes Edition, Part 2 of The Atomic Cafe. There will soon be an end to this cold and wicked war When those hard-headed communists get what they're looking for Only one thing that will stop them they're atrocious fun If General MacArthur drops an atomic bomb They'll be fired just in the middle Flying all around And the radioactivity will turn them to the ground If there's any commies left They'll be all on the run If General MacArthur drops an atomic bomb Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Last week we brought you part one of an interview with Jane Loder, one of the directors of the classic 1982 film documentary called The Atomic Cafe, a darkly comic and horrifying collage of government propaganda clips and popular culture surrounding the development and deployment of U.S. nuclear weapons. In part one, we talked about the dropping of the A-bomb and the lies that were told about it. This week... Jane talks about how she and her co-directors obtained the material and the impact the Cold War and nuclear weapons had on American culture, from duck and cover drills to the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Here now is part two of my interview with Jane Loder, director of The Atomic Cafe. How did you get access to all these clips? I mean, some of them are really quite incriminating in a way, aren't they? Well, they are, but uh, uh, not only were soldiers naive, but the government agencies were naive at the time we started making the film. So, for example, the civil defense films, we called the Office of Civil Defense and we went to visit them and we said, do you have any films? And this guy says, yeah, I think there's some films back there in, in this closet. And I said, okay, do you have a projector or somewhere we can watch them? He said, oh, just take them. <laughs> <laughs> so we got our Volkswagen van and we backed it up oh, to the loading wow. dock. And we uh, got all these civil defense films. And that's where we found one of my favorite clips, which is of the 4-H girls, you know, showing you how to make a tasty meal in a fallout shelter. That was something <laughs> somebody's dad shot. And it had been sitting in the Office of Civil Defense in an unopened can, probably for 40 years. 
If there will be a need to spend two weeks in a fallout shelter, we have packed our survival kit. For the food supply, pack variety of fruits, soups, evaporated milk, vegetables, napkins. The purpose of our demonstration today is to show you the actual preparation of one of the meals which was prepared in a modern-day cave. One noon meal consisted of the following foods. Canned chicken, peas, Irish potatoes, tomato juice, So it was really, really amazing. And, you know, also the the military was not, they were not aware that filmmakers were going to come in and want to look at their footage. So they just didn't really know what to do with us. And, and they did not try to censor us at all. Everyone always asks us, why, well, didn't they investigate you? Didn't they try to stop you? No, nobody tried to stop us. Um, Pierce and I went up to the military base at Tobihana, Pennsylvania, which is up in the Catskills. And, uh, you know, we stayed there for a week watching footage. Oh my and goodness. that's where we found the soldiers charging into the atomic cloud. How did the Cold War and the Russian acquisition of the bomb crank up the propaganda machine? They certainly cranked up the atomic testing program. That's for sure. Uh -huh. and, and the whole idea of the Russians getting the bomb surely caused the United States to develop the H-bomb. So you can see how that's all tied together. It's time for the Longines Chronoscope. Our distinguished guest for this evening is the Honorable James E. Van Zandt, United States Congressman from Pennsylvania. It's my opinion that uh, we should fight the war to win in Korea rather than try to settle it at the diplomatic table, which is impossible when you're dealing uh, with Russia. Would you extend your will to win so far as to include the atomic bomb? Very definitely, Dr. Peterson. I've always been a firm believer that we should use the atomic bomb, not only on Korea, uh, but north of the Alu River in Manchuria. Does that mean that you believe that it could be effectively used as a weapon in the Korean theater? Yes, I think that uh, there are several targets uh, in northern Korea, uh, we could use, that is, we could destroy them with the atomic bomb, we could destroy them and contaminate them. And then, of course, there are targets in Manchuria that should be destroyed. There were so many remarkable segments in, in the film, but I think the one that was the most devastating to me was the eyewitness description of the execution of Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, in, including the botched execution of Ethel. It was just horrifying. I had never heard that before. Where did you find that? It was just in an outtake can. I think that was from NBC News. Bob Considine was a fairly famous broadcaster of his time, and he was allowed to witness the execution. So um, it, it was much longer, that piece was probably 10 minutes long, uncut, and uh, it was very, very moving. When it appeared that she had received enough electricity to kill an ordinary person and, and had received the exact amount that had killed her husband, the doctors went over and pulled down the cheap prison dress, a little dark green printed job, and place the stethoscope, stetho, I can't say it. Place the stethoscopes uh, to her and then looked around, looked at each other rather dumbfounded and seemed surprised that she was not dead. Believing she was dead, the attendants had taken off the ghastly strappings and electrodes and the black belts and so forth. And these had to be readjusted again and, and she was given more electricity, which started again that kind of a ghastly plume of smoke that rose from her head and went up against the skylight uh, overhead. 
after two more of those jolts, uh, Ethel Rosenberg uh, had met a maker. She'll have a lot of explaining to do, too. You mentioned the fallout shelters before. I don't know about where you grew up, but we had them in the apartment buildings all over New York City in the 1950s. I remember those large steel drums supposedly filled with dry biscuits and water. I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, which was a prime target area because we had General Dynamics and other weapon Uh manufacturers. Lockheed was there. And I lived across the street from a guy who was the bomb shelter king of North Texas. (laughs) And he had two demonstration bomb shelters in his backyard. And he was very successful in marketing these things. (laughs) You know, even though we were a prime target area and we would have all been incinerated uh, in the first 10 seconds of of a nuclear (laughs) war. By all means, provide some tranquilizers to ease the strain and monotony of life in a shelter. A bottle of 100 should be adequate for a family of four. The other thing that struck a chord of my childhood was the duck and cover drills in school. I certainly remember them in my elementary school. We had to do that, too. Um, it was pretty silly, but yes, and, and Bertha Turtle, who, who's the cartoon who's going to tell you to duck and cover, was shown in uh, auditoriums, in classrooms, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. it was distributed. That film was widely distributed. It was shown in schools and on television and in churches and you know anywhere that had a movie night, uh, you could get to see Bertha the Turtle. shells to crawl into like Bert the turtle, so we have to cover up in our own way. Paul and Patty know this. No matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb, duck and cover. Here's Tony going to his Cub Scout meeting. Tony knows the bomb can explode any time of the year, day or night. Duck and cover. Atta boy, Tony, that flash means act fast. And the propaganda wasn't just from film and TV, but there were even pop songs about the bomb, weren't there? Yes, there were some songs, country songs, like I'm No Communist, and uh, when General MacArthur gets the atomic bomb, he'll drop it on Korea. The um, song 13 Women by Bill Haley and the Comets was the B-side of Rock Around the Clock. And tell us the lyrics about uh, right. of 13 women, if you're not if <laughs> It's just about what will happen when, after the bomb drops and there are 13 women and only one man in town. <laughs> the upside <laughs> of the atomic bomb. <laughs> In your closing credits, one of the people you give a special thanks to was Abby Hoffman. What was that about? Abby gave us money. Um, So we had to uh, raise a lot of money while we were 
making the movie. We did have some money of our own because Pierce and Kevin had money and, but we didn't have enough. And so from time to time we would go out and have fundraisers and uh, Abby was involved in one of those fundraisers and helped us. Well, Jane, as we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to add? Uh, No, I just would like to encourage everyone to see our movie. We were really happy that Kino Lorber has decided to re-release it and it's streaming on their YouTube channel. Well, thanks so much, Jane. I've been speaking with Jane Loder, one of the directors of the classic anti-nuke documentary, The Atomic Cafe. The uh, group had been told to select some targets in Japan that had not been bombed. In other words, they wanted virgin targets. And the reason behind it, even though not given to the group at that time, the reason behind it was that they wanted to be able to make bomb blast studies or bomb damage studies on virgin targets once the bombs were used. They offered such a, uh, well, you could almost say a, a, a classroom experiment as far as being able to determine later the bomb damage. Every dollar I make goes for taxes and bills. Perhaps they've discovered the cure for my ills. Oh, hi ho, the hydrogen bomb. Bless it all. Oh, let it fall. Oh, hi ho, the hydrogen bomb. Oh, God have mercy on me. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.